Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome Jacob Bossar as my guest. Jacob is the CEO and founder of Bosac, a very ambitious water scale-up aiming to develop innovative and future-proof drinking water solutions. In this week's episode, you'll learn that the solution to water scarcity might come from Antarctica. Actually, Jacob will share how recycling water and energy in one of the Earth's most remote places led him to found Bosac, and how the biggest challenge to overcome the lack of access to drinking water might be political. Jacob will tell us how bottled water companies' marketing can and shall be replicated in the water industry, and how building a water treatment unicorn involves taking a lot of risks and regularly passing quite close to bankruptcy. Throughout our conversation, we'll address many topics, such as how Bostak started with only a business plan and a Flemish grant to cover the company's first six months, the fascinating experiment they enabled where a restaurant's toilets and kitchen wastewaters are 100% recycled to be bottled and served back at the restaurant tables, how Jacob attempts to beat capitalism from the inside, how dreaming big is a duty as an entrepreneur, and so much more. But right before we get to the bottom of it, I need you. This episode is the last of this podcast season 2 and it's been a fantastic ride as we just passed 200,000 combined views for this season alone. Yet before we start season 3 next week, I'd like that season to be even more helpful, interesting and interactive. And this starts with you. You'll find a link to a short survey in the show notes. Trust me, it will help me tremendously if you took just a couple of minutes to fill it out and to thank you for your answers, you'll have a chance to participate in a draw. Three of you will receive a nice little personalized present from me. Just check out the link. Everything is explained there. Please do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Really pleased to be here. So I have many questions for you. Hopefully you have some answers as well, but I have to start with something. I had Matthew Silver on that podcast and Ravid Levy, who shared me some stories about Antarctica. And uh, that's the very first thing I saw in your path and in your company description. So uh, you also have something to do with Antarctica. And if I get it right, it's almost the source of your company. So can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I graduated as a chemical engineer from the University of Ghent in 2011. But in 2010... They asked me if I wanted to go to Antarctica. No, didn't ask me. There was a there was an application for water expedition in general Antarctica. I didn't know anything about water, but I wanted to go to Antarctica. So I just applied for the job and I got in the last round, uh, but didn't choose me. They chose the other guy. There were just two left because he was more experienced with water, obviously, because I didn't know anything about water. They didn't know. I just said I did know about it, but I didn't. So I couldn't go. And in 2011, I signed my contract, my first contract with Dow Chemicals, chemical company, obviously a chemical engineer, um, to start in September. And in July the same year, so I, I signed that contract in April. And in July the same year, they called me back from the Antarctic organization. And they asked me if I wanted to go to Antarctica anyway, because like, I didn't want to go anymore. And I was like, oh, sure. So I'll, I called uh, Dow and it... They allowed me to start later, four months later, because the uh, summer season in Antarctica is four months, from November till February. And that was my first job. So I uh, went off, went to Antarctica as a water expedition engineer. I got to the station, and it was literally uh, like, uh, this is your installation. Good luck. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm going to do this. So I, I read a lot. I worked like a fool the first three weeks of the mission. And I managed to start it up. Still don't know how. But I think because I didn't know how the system worked, it worked. Because the system that was there had never worked before. It was very bad managed. It was very bad designed. It was uh, never operational. 
And because I didn't know, I took a lot of risks. Uh, but sometimes, luck is in your side, basically. And the system worked. I went back four times uh, to Antarctica. Always in the in the summer, Antarctic summer. So that's from November to February. And in the meantime, I worked in uh, chemical industry. And I um, I switched jobs. So when I went to Antarctica, I quit my job. When I came back, I got a new job. So that's uh, for four years. And the last time I went was ex- as expedition leader for the, for the Belgian government. There was a big quarrel about the station with the, with the one who constructed and then the owner Belgian state and they asked me to resolve the issue it was very political so I was actually actually in the middle of a war I was fighting a war for the government which, which was not my war uh, a bit naively I was very young was the youngest of the team and still leading the team I had four cabinets with me defense was with me uh, healthcare science and another cabinet and four experts it was very uh, a very big adventure because uh, we flew uh, to South Africa. We stayed for a while. We had to negotiate with the company that was uh, working together with the person that was in the eyes of the government, the bad guy. So it was a lot of intrigue, basically, politically as well, so with the ambassador. And then we flew to Antarctica with a big illusion. Uh, it's a... Um, a freight plane from the Russians uh, mm-hmm. went to Novolavraskaya, which is the Russian station. From there, we flew 350 kilometers east to the Belgian station. And first, we, they didn't allow us to get in the station because of the quarrel. So we had to negotiate, finally got us in. And then we, went, we would go to an illegal uh, setup airspace on Antarctica because Antarctica cannot be used for tourism. And they were setting up a tourism base. So we went there and uh, the pilots tried to land twice and then they told us they couldn't land. But the pilots were part of the company that colluded with the opponent of the government. So it was mm-hmm. very dodgy. Yeah, okay, we didn't land, so we went back and then we flew to the Norwegian station. Uh, we stayed there for a night and then we flew out with a private jet chartered by the government. It was a unique experience, to be honest. It was uh, really nice. It's a very different way uh, to travel, but it's something you can get used to, I suppose. And then I, I got back to South Africa. It was a trip that cost a lot of money. But it's taxpayers' money, and I was not fine with the result because the result was actually that the government made a lot of mistakes, and they just threw it in the trash because they want they didn't want to publish it. And then I said, okay, this is not my fight. I don't want to be involved. So mm-hmm. I, then I, I stopped working for Antarctica because I worked for the former guy, I worked for the new uh, people. The former guy was reinstalled again, but I told, I said to myself, this is not what I want to do. I want to make a real difference in the world. And because I was technically involved very deep into the Antarctic station, Princess Elizabeth, which is called, I set up my own company. Because the particular thing about the station is that it runs 100% on renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, if you can recycle water, because that's what I did, recycle the water in one of the most extreme environments in the world, you can do it anywhere. And that's how the idea evolved to Bosak, which is the sustainable water company where we provide decentralized supply of drinking water with the means of renewable energies. So that's actually the starting point for me uh, for Bosak. Yeah. So basically you, you learned everything the hard way and you were thinking, if I'm able to do it the hard way, I can do it in any kind of other environment in the world. It's going to be easier probably, even if still challenging. What was the temperature in Antarctica? It's actually okay. It's between minus five and minus 35. Okay, minus... <laughs> it's summer, so that's. But it's actually quite uh, okay because it's dry. It's really dry. The climate. It's one of the driest in the world. So if it's minus five, you can work with your t-shirt outside, no problem at all. If there's no wind, you burn immediately because the hole in the, in the ozone layer is the thinnest over Antarctica and New Zealand. So you got to be very, very, very careful. But it's actually a very nice environment. We were in the mountains. Super beautiful. I went skiing there. I went with the with the snow scooter. We did hiking, alpinism. 80% of time, it's uh, without clouds. It's 24-hour sun, obviously, because you're in, the, in summertime there. It's a beautiful, a beautiful um, environment. And it's also, for me, the first and last time that I experienced silence. It's very strange, because I was driving with a, with a motorcycle, well, with a snow scooter over the ice plains. I stopped and I walked for yeah, a few hundred meters. And then I sat down and the only thing you hear is your breath and the cracking of your clothes. But that's the only, you don't hear wind because there are no trees that it whistles through. You don't hear birds because there are no birds. You don't hear noise in the background from things that happen. It's 100% science and the force of nature is so overwhelming in such simplicity. It's almost empowering, but it's also, it makes you feel very, very small. It was a really, really nice experience. So power of nature, yeah very, very clearly present in Antarctica. You're a chemical engineer, which means if you look at the water treatment world, there is a full part of it which is made of chemicals and which are yeah, almost chemical way to treat water. 
And if I get it right, your solution has little to do with that. Is that a paradox or did you have an, an epiphany? I don't think it's a paradox. What I do think is everything is chemistry um, because everything consists out of atoms, molecules. So everything is chemistry. But you have the good chemistry and the wrong chemistry because I think chemical industry, although from a public point of view, they're maybe not sustainable. It's actually the industry that makes most things sustainable because the most of innovation, new products, new, more sustainable, uh, biodegradable products, they come from the chemical industry. But I think it's more a public opinion thing rather than the realistic thing, what chemical industry does. On the other hand, you have the bad chemicals saying the really polluting chemicals. And in our solutions, we make sure that we avoid these chemicals. So that's where the bad chemistry basically is being avoided. And our solutions are not chemically based, they're physically based, which is obviously a lot more sustainable than a physical chemical chemical uh, water treatment plant, which we don't do, obviously. Yeah. So w what was your start with BOSAC? Was it like, I have that cool process, which I saw working in Antarctica, let me replicate it? Or what was your, your first act? When you start as an entrepreneur, nobody teaches you how to do that. So you're very naive. That's the first thing. From a technical point of view, I was quite okay. Although I, I knew very fast, I lacked the skills to do what I wanted to do. So the first thing I actually did, it was networking. So I networked a lot, a lot, with a lot of people in Belgium to make sure that I knew the right people to go to. And the second thing I did is writing a business plan. Now, a business plan, nobody reads that. But it's very good to make it because you overthink things you otherwise never think about. Mm -hmm. So it was a good exercise for me. And I found out that from writing the business plan, I said, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not the technical Einstein, basically. So I need somebody who helps me to do this. And then I asked a friend of mine with whom I studied, but he he did a PhD. He was always the, the best in school. So he was also a laureate. I don't know how I say that in, in English, but he was the best in school. And he also won a prize for his master thesis. So he's a brilliant guy, but he's also a very, um, he has also a very high EQ. So he's very good with people. And I called him and he just came back from seven months of world travel and I told him, uh, I need you. Uh, do you want to join the ID that I want to set up? And he said, if you can make sure I have a certainty of six months, I'm in. And we worked together on a subsidy from the Flemish government. We got the grant and we started off. At the day we got the grant, he quit his job. And two days later, he was sitting at the desk with me working on the idea that we... Uh, that we are doing right now, being a decentralized drink water supply. So it's a nice story. Yeah. Is the ID the technical thing you're delivering or is the ID your, your vision of the impact you want to have? Yeah, the ID is obviously the technical part because that's where it comes from. But like I said, you start very naively. Now, drinking water, even more than just water, is a very political product. Mm -hmm. And that was my naivety. I thought, yeah, drink water, everybody needs it. So easy. The market is there, so let's start a company. And then you bump against the boundaries, which are the political ones. And that's where the technological idea evolved to a visionary idea, I think. Because I think the vision of Bosak is one of our strongest selling points. We do not sell technology, although we consider ourselves a water technology company, not as a water utility company, which is a big difference. So we, we develop patents, we develop new technology, we look at new ways on how treating uh, better, less chemicals, less impact, less energy consumption. So all these things are really important to us. But I sell an idea, an idea of having drinking water available for everybody. And that's also what you have to sell when you talk to governments. And the political gain from providing drink water community is quite high. So you have a good leverage there. But it's really the vision that you have to bring over to the people that want to get elected next term. So if you get that vision over to them, they buy into it. And your technology has to be good. It has to be on top. It has to be the best. Why? Because you're working with public health. And for yourself as a company, if something goes wrong, you're to blame in your company, especially when you're young and you're a startup and you're not very known. If you do one bad project, you're out of the market immediately. So we are obliged to ourselves to make sure that our products are top-notch. So we see ourselves as, as well as product leaders. So product leadership is the main goal of, of the company setup, basically. But it's not that that we sell. It's really the idea of providing in a sustainable way clean drinking water, which is safe for everybody who drinks it for a longer period of time. That's what we sell. So this clean drinking water has a name for you. It's this premium drinking water. I mean, that's what you, you find on your website. And let us start with a definition. What is premium drinking water? Because when you say that to me, you know, it sounds like an ad campaign for a, a bottled water company. And it's premium because uh, that's what you should give to, to babies. I'm really extrapolating here. But your take is obviously very different. 
Yes and no, because we also have a bottling water company, which I'm going to go into a bit later. But the word premium, I think it's necessary to communicate. It's marketing, obviously. But what we do with our technology provides the best quality of drinking water. The problem is that 80% of Europeans do not trust water from the tap. 80%. Yeah, which is huge. Belgium is one of the worst countries concerning drinking water uh, consumption from tap water. Most Belgians buy bottles. Italy the same. In Holland, is the complete opposite. So it's really country dependent. What is their concern with it? Why? Not safe, not clean, still some, some um, um, medicines in it or drugs or whatever, just perception. And that's also, this is due to the fact that the marketing of the bottled water industry is very fierce. Because if you think about it, a bottled water company, that's not a water production company, it's a water transportation company. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it like that, you get a completely different view on what water is. Because what we do with our technology, we make water that's a lot more controlled than the water that comes out of the ground. But the perception is obviously different because the marketing machines behind these companies are huge. The, the, the money they throw at it is enormous. But I think there's a shift. There's a shift in, in, in people understanding that, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous to transport water from one source all over the world. And I'm coming back to the bottled water we do. We provide premium bottled water for now only in um, the high hospitality market so what we do we build actually a very small drinking water factories we put it in a hotel and the water in the environment can be seawater can be river water can be rain water can be ground water it doesn't really matter you need a source of water but it can be any water we're going to purify it up to a standard which is actually 100% h2o so pure, pure, pure water, mm -hmm. which is actually not very healthy because you need minerals. What we're going to do, we're going to add minerals again. But we patent technology that we can choose what minerals we add. So we can make uh, some Pellegrino, we can make Perrier, we can make any kind of water we want. Uh, but we can even make water for sports with a lot of magnesium or for children with a lot of calcium. So we can do whatever. We can alter the taste. We can alter the content of the water. So we can really play with the health benefits of certain minerals in water. Then we're going to bottle it in glass or metal. So no plastic. We're going to close it and we're going to seal it as a premium bottled water. We're going to provide to the customers in the hotel. Customers drink it. The bottle comes back to the installation. It's cleaned on site. It's refilled, recapped, resealed on site. And what you actually have done is eliminated 100% of your transport of water. And we become, therefore, a water production company instead of a water transportation company. So the CO2 footprint is gone. But also 40% of the costs of bottled water is transport also gone. So you have a more sustainable product, which is cheaper than the conventional product. And that's what I'm saying before also uh, in the talk here uh, at GF. If you provide a sustainable solution, make sure it's also economical viable. And that's what we exactly do with this concept. Of course, this is a concept that Bosak is not focusing on. Um, it's a concept we test on Tomorrowland twice. It had a huge positive feedback, huge. Um, we had an inquiry that 99% of people were very positive about the concept. So we knew, okay, this is something. And now we have one client in South Africa. It's a high-end eco-resort where we apply this. And now it's more for technical augmentation to make sure that technology behind it is robust, very robust, and we can really scale it up. But that's going to be another company part of the Bossa group, obviously. And that's also where premium, of course, it's a marketing word, but it's really to make people understand premium is about the water quality is not about having a big name like Spine Belgium or San Pellegrino Worldwide or Paris Worldwide. They call it premium. Why is other water not premium? It's just a concept, of course. It's just a, an ID. And the water we provide is premium. And most water, even tap water, is premium water. But drinking water companies don't market it like that. What's interesting is that if you look at, at bottled water, not so long ago, it wasn't a thing. They made a big marketing effort and they imposed it. I didn't know they did this, I would say, terrifying figure as a water engineer of 80% being afraid of uh, or having concerns about tap water. But when you think of it, you're, you're using the, the same weapons and you're saying, okay, you want to put that on that marketing level, let's do the same. That's a very interesting way. I didn't intend to do it in that sequence of thing, but I've seen one of your references And you're going to tell me if it's the most extreme one, but uh, where you have a very short loop to reuse uh, water. And that's at a restaurant in Belgium, if I'm, if I'm right. Yeah. Is that the same kind of bottled water or is it a, 
another different concept that you're developing? No, it's exactly the same. No, that project was a, a showcase project. It's not something that we want to commercialize. So it's with, uh, with Friends of the European Union and more to showcase technology. But what we do there is actually we're going from black water, which is toilet water, and uh, wastewater from the kitchen. We recycle 100% up to bottled water again. Now, from a quality point of view, no issue at all. So we also, the Belgian Food Administration was involved to make sure that everything was safe, but there's no issue. But it's just obviously the mindset. People think, oh, it's coming from the time. I'm not going to drink this. But that's just a psychological thing. And just to show what is possible. Which brings me back to the marketing element. If you look at Singapore, they market the new water because uh, it had to have a name. And they, uh, they have this awesome beer, which is brewed from, from this new water. And that's where to say, hey, look, it's even tasty. So Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think I'm raised as a person that is against capitalism. But to beat capitalism, you got to become a part of it. How strange that sounds. Now, my brothers and sisters, I'm from a big family, six brothers and sisters. We all have that social incentive in us because my parents, they really make sure that we, that we are people that care about the nature, care about the world, that we do something back. Uh, so my brothers and a lot of my brothers and sisters, they set them against the world as a capitalistic system where people make too much money for just small percentage. And I thought, no, I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to use that capitalistic system to make a difference. But it's only because when you get big, you can make a real change. Now, it's a good one, but I don't say that Maranis is doing something wrong, but they give something to charity. They don't get themselves involved in the real consumption uh, industry. And I said, no, I'm going to use capitalism to make a change. And I think the biggest fear I should have is to not follow the same capitalistic route that a lot of companies that earn a lot of money do. And stay true to myself, my own beliefs. But I have, I'm very well surrounded, first, my family and the people that work within BOSAC. Because everybody that works at BOSAC has to comply with the Ten Commandments of BOSAC. And the Ten Commandments is a framework of BOSAC, a value framework where the idealistic view on the world is a necessity to work at BOSAC. So everybody is a bit naive in a good way that we want to change the world for the good. And if you have that as a company in your DNA, I'm 100% convinced that we can make a change for the good. I never start a company to become rich, I start a company to make impact. And that's what BOSAC is about. We want to make impact. But we're not scared of earning money, obviously. If you want to grow, if you want to grow your business, if you want to have more impact, you need to grow, so you need to have money to do that. So we're earning money. I'm also the first to say that people have to pay for drinking water. It's not free. It's a human basic right, absolutely, but it's not free. Because food is also a human basic right. It's also not for free. Because you have to do effort to make water drinkable. And there we come to the value of water, what value does water have? Because for a farm, it's different than for a company that uses a lot of water in a schooling system. If the company, uh, if they don't have cooling, they can't operate the company and the people uh, have to be laid off. But if you take too much water out of the river for your cooling station, ships can't run anymore. So everything is connected. And water is a, is a very good example of how interconnected everything is. Because if you don't have water, you don't live. So it starts already there. And every advancement in this world, in, in industry, is water-based. You see it from back in the history, is big civilizations like the pharaohs in Egypt relied on fresh water from the Nile to make sure that they became a big power. They had food, they, had, they could... So it's always connected with the way of living. The luxury we have in the West is based on water in the end. And it always comes back to water. And I, of course, it's easy to say I'm working in water. But if you think about it, how important water is for everything we do, yeah, then you cannot underestimate the value of water. It's a very interesting take, which reminds me of a conversation I had with Michael Stanley Galisdorfer on that same microphone, where we were saying how important he was explaining that um, when you bring back the rivers in the cities, basically you bring them to their, their, their ground essence. They, they were built around those rivers. So you have to, to see those rivers again. And it was also citing a number, which is that every dollar you invest in water actually has a $4 feedback. So the return on investment in water is pretty high. And what you just told me about this, um, your take at somehow capitalism reminds me of, you know, the Monopoly game. The Monopoly game has been created by someone who was really against capitalism. And basically the game was set so that people understand capitalism so that they can fight against it. Of course, that vanished and now everybody's just playing Monopoly. But just to say, it sounds, <laughs> there's a kind of affiliation with, with, with what you do, which is very interesting. There's one thing in your business model, and I don't know if that was here from day one, because you say you started with your business model, but a portion of what you're owning goes into a special fund. Can you tell us something about that? 
Yes. So uh, we set up a foundation which is called Water Heroes. And it's a foundation that supports really the communities with people that really don't have anything to provide for themselves. And we provide technology to provide clean drinking water. So it's 10% of the profits that goes there from the company. Of course, we're a young company, so that profit we don't make. But every time I go talking about Antarctica, I get paid for that. That money goes to the nonprofit. I wrote a study for the BMW Foundation. They pay quite well, goes to the nonprofit. And we also have clients that, for CSR reasons, donate to Water Heroes. And Water Heroes is really... It's actually a result of my education for my parents, doing something good back for the world if you're successful. And that's exactly what we do. But that 10% is not something that is lightly taken, that decision, because in our shareholder agreements with our investors, it's there. So they can't say if there are dividends, 10% of this will never go to them. It will go to the foundation. And I think if we get investors and they say, oh, we don't agree with that, we, we don't want this rule, then they're not the right investors. So we oblige everybody who financially is involved with Bosak to give something back to community because the fact that we can live the way we live is a gift, basically, compared to all these other people who don't have it, 2.2 billion people not having access to clean drinking water on a regular basis. We have that, so do something back to the community. And it's also a sustainable concept in the sense that Water Heroes is only getting its funds from industry. It doesn't get its funds from government. It's a, an absolute no-go that we get subsidies or something for projects. So again, it's a sustainable setup. So because if Water Hero becomes bigger, it buys its products at Bosak, so it's good for Bosak from a commercial point of view. But if uh, Bosak grows, then Water Heroes grows as well because they get more funds from Bosak. So it's communicating vessels. And I think this is the is an ideal setup of charity because it's a sustainable concept. You don't rely on a government that pays you every year that same amount. And if there's a crisis in government, they don't pay you anymore, you can't. So no, we, we 100% said no, this has to be a sustainable concept that pays itself. And uh, I believe in this because I believe if every company worldwide does the same effort as we do, you have a different world, 100%. It's interesting because you are applying your company culture to your employees, which have to live with these uh, 10 commandments of BOSAC. And you also have the similar setup with your investors. So um, we see that you, you said that you started from the business model, but still the, this impact element is really, I would say, the vertical thing that unites everything you do. It seems to me like that, at least. It's real. And it's, I want it to be real. You know, what happens uh, a lot, especially with bigger companies, is that they buy themselves the green label. Mm -hmm. We don't want that. We do not brag about being sustainable. It's part of our business. And I believe that any young business that starts now has to be sustainable and not brag about, oh, how, look how sustainable you are. Now, for example, companies like Coca-Cola, they have to do that because they don't have another option. They were found way when sustainability was not even an issue. But it's very difficult for these companies to have that image as sustainability. And for us, it's a lot easier. And I think it has to be part of, of our business, basically. It would almost be a crime. I mean, if you're in the water industry and you're not sustainable, it's that you do extra things in order not to be sustainable. So it would be strange in that word. But nevertheless, you, there's sustainability. You can do a bit something and say, hey, what I do is already sustainable. Or you can say, hey, I actively do my part and you're actively doing your part. So, But I think it's important as well. The first thing we ask the GF as a supplier of us, especially when we're going to bigger orders with them, is we ask them, uh, can you send me your sustainability charter? Mm -hmm. And not because I want to, yeah, I want to make a point, obviously, but also we, we want that we work with companies that also believe in that transition to a more sustainable future. Walking the talk, yeah. Exactly. And that's, for us, that's, uh, it's difficult as a startup because you don't have that much weight. Yeah. What do we order with GF as a startup? And it's not going to be, I hope in a few years it will be massively more and you have more power to oblige your suppliers to also walk the talk, exactly like you say. But I think it's a responsibility of us as companies. We have to, to share this idea with everybody. And it's also, if you want to go to a sustainable future where everybody has more rights than they have now, then it's the way to go. The pure capitalistic system, like it has been operated for decades, I don't believe in. I don't believe it's done. And I also believe that the younger generation, which is the biggest part of the population, People don't understand, but it's the biggest part of it. I think Nigeria is the average age is under 20, I think, the 200 million people in Nigeria. So I'm just saying, so the future is at the young. Mm -hmm. And they have. I think they really understand what they have to do to make sure that their future is secure for them and their kids. Uh, so I'm very positive about it. But yeah. You mentioned the startup element. And on that same microphone, I had a talk with uh, Gaetan Susne, I would say a couple of weeks ago. And she was mentioning that in the water world, there's a lot of startups. A lot. I mean, understand me, it's not uh, IT, it's not, but, but still, there's 
quite a bunch of startups and there are some majors and in between there's not so much scale-ups. And she was saying that a reason for that is that whether it was not your ambition from day one to build a monster or if you're really innovative enough, chances are you get bought by a major. When I listen to you, it sounds rather to me like your ambition is to build a monster. Yeah. Monster in a positive way. So let's say build a unicorn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm not afraid to say that. I started this company not to have a company of 10 million of turnovers, sit in my couch, relax, earn good money and be happy. That's not what I intended to do. I told my uh, Peter who started with me, the company, I thought, if you do this, we're going to do this good. So we're going to go for impact. And that's, you see that all the decisions we take with the company, we always, in three years and a half, we've been almost three times bankrupt. Not because we're doing bad, but just we're investing hugely in what's coming. That's what you have to do as well. And that's, of course, to grow as fast as possible. Because for us, growth is equals impact, not equals more money on our bank account. Of course, it's a part of it, but you need that to invest to grow again. And it's impact. And that's what I want. I want to have an impact. I want to have a real impact worldwide. And we want to become number one worldwide in decentralized drink water supply. Because I think we have a very good concept of providing drinking water to all these people around the world at the cheapest total cost of ownership and i want to just have that impact and this is my dream i'm a dreamer i think it's also important as an entrepreneur to dream but my dreams are huge i want to be the first having a, a drink water installation on mars it's a it's a real dream it's gonna happen i don't know but it's a dream and i think being able to dream is something for my mom always said dream 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 and i keep dreaming and i think the dream is for me that's what i want to want to reach to and i dream big it's part of me it's part of the company it's part of the people that work within bolsack and i think we also have a unique product basically drink water it's such a huge market so you can dream big it's not like you have a, a very niche thing that only a few people in the world would need you have something that everybody needs every day, 7.5 billion people today, and in a few years, about 10 billion people. So it's something big. So you can dream big, I believe. But big in that industry is also quite special because when you think of it, the biggest company in the world, even now, even bigger, if you consider that the number one might be buying the number two, but it's still 5% of the market. So, so big is still, I mean, it's a portion of, of such a huge cake that it's still tremendously big. But... It's not like you, you were mentioning Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, they have Pepsi against them. And if you take the two of them, they are probably 90% of the market. So it's a bit different in the water world. Yeah, that's true. But that's also if you look at the market value of Coca-Cola and you look at the market value of drinking water, that's also a huge, huge difference. The thing is that not everybody drinks Coca-Cola, but everybody drinks water. Everybody. It's not because you like it. It's just you need it. <laughs> There's a difference. And for me... I don't want to be the biggest. I want to be the biggest to have impact. And if it's only 40 million people that you provide drinking water, it's 5% of these 850 million people who never have access to drinking water. And say if you have 100 companies who do the same as me, then we have solved already mm -hmm. a challenge that's there. So it's not from the megalomanic point of view that I want to be the biggest. It's from an impact point of view I want to be the biggest. I want to have as much impact as possible. I have as much, reach as much people as possible because I can assure you the biggest joy I feel working on this company is when people come to you almost crying and are so grateful that finally, after all these years, they have good quality drinking water and that they can give them to the kids in a safe way. They don't get sick anymore. And people, they come to you, they're almost crying. That's the best thing you can have as an entrepreneur. You really feel you have made an impact in that community. At the same time, you, you're growing your company. But what did we fail as an industry that in 2021, it's still a blue ocean and a blue field that there's, I mean, now I'm talking very... Um, almost an aggressive way to look at things. I mean, when you, when you say 2.2 billion people don't have access to drinking water, of course, it's a terrible story to them. But in terms of marketing, that's a huge market. It's a blue ocean. So many people, you can do so, so many things. How is it possible when you think that water is... I mean, you cannot live without water. Every civilization has traces of water associated to the civilization. So it's really entrenched in our behaviors and in our lives. And still, it is a blue ocean. So why does the water sector need a Borsak? Mindset. It's like I said, we don't sell products. We sell a mindset. If I can explain to a government that buying at Bosak is gaining the next elections, then you have an impact for them as well. It sounds a bit wrong, obviously, mm -hmm. but it's actually what we do. You got to be honest with what you do. A politician is elected 
to make sure to provide for the people that elect them. And bringing, especially decentralized drink water supply, is very visible. It's a huge impact in society. So people can connect the good impact on society to the political level. Now, what happened with water for decades is, first of all, it's not liberalized. So private companies were not involved in the industry. And it was also treated from an NGO point of view, which I don't have nothing against NGOs. But a good example, Rwanda, stable. A lot of NGOs like to operate there. You have 10 villages. They all need water. What happens? 10 NGOs, they go to these 10 villages. They all have their own drink water system. One fails. The other doesn't, can't follow anymore because he, he doesn't know the technology. There's no support. There's, no, there's a lack of coordination. Um, it doesn't work. Now, I talk, for example, to the government of Liberia as well. They have a, a huge challenge with regulating the market because they are not powerful, financially powerful enough to provide drink water themselves, but you have 500 players in the market to provide drink water, which the result is that their quality, lack of quality, lack of supply, lack of... And if you involve, I think the approach that we do is not going bypassing the government, but use the government to create that impact, is different. That business model is different. And maybe it's not going to work. So far, it really worked for us. Maybe it's not going to work, but I believe it's the way to go. Because you approach the drinking water from a completely different point, and it is as it has been done, what it has been done, or it was government only, or it was uh, NGO. But the combination, private government, with that clear proposition as we have, is quite new. You, of course, have partnerships, but that's government, <laughs> because government is leading there. They want to have their say. It's political, but that's something we don't do. We do politics in our sales process, but as soon as we have the country, we work as a private company, providing good quality drinking water to provide the people there. And I think that concept is it's not new, but it's new for the water market. And I think, yeah, the, the liberalization of the market as well comes with innovation. That's what you see. The, the, the market is changing, yeah. So basically, you're reversing the scale effect. Before, you would have a myriad of players and one central government, a city, which is centralizing everything and which is saying, hey, I can leverage my scale to make something efficient. And what you're saying is that they are probably not doing that thing efficient themselves. But if you are a company that does that scale thing, that you are the one serving all of them, then you have that scale effect. And on top of that, you do that efficiently. Exactly. Let's go to the technical side of things. We've alluded a bit to it because that's came from your, your Antarctica years. But what is your system? What is it all about? Yeah. So our system is membrane-based. Uh, membranes, they are around since the 70s and since the 2000s are commercially viable because before it was way too expensive, it was not robust, technology was not reliable. Now it's very reliable. Its technology is used. It's almost the main technology. It's not main, but it's used a lot more than it's ever been used. And for us, it's at this stage the best technology to provide high-quality drink water at all, at all times. Um, Which kind of membranes? Ultrafiltration? Ultrafiltration, nanofiltration, reverse osmosis, microfiltration as well as pretreatment. But what we've done is, first of all, we made a system that's 100% off-grid, which mm -hmm. is quite unique. So we don't need electricity from the grid or from a generator to operate our systems. And we made a system that's 100% independent from human interaction. Which is, of course, important because, for example, Suriname is the country is the, the country we have the biggest contracts running. These systems are in the middle of the jungle, and if it breaks down, you can't send energy from Belgium up there. So you have to make sure that everything is built robust and is built also that you can do it from a distance, which we do. Every installation worldwide is connected to the internet. Every installation we can see. So IoT is always there, or it's through cell phone network, which in most countries is available even in the middle of the jungle in Suriname. And if you don't have it, you have satellites. This is how we, we make sure that at all time have control. Because what happens a lot is with projects that a project installed, installation is installed, companies left, breaks down after two, three months, nobody knows about it, and it doesn't operate anymore. So also in the concept, what we do is three years of maintenance is included. If a government doesn't want to, we don't provide systems. So it's obligatory. You really have a strong take at the market yeah. and everything has, has its clear rules. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. So the technology transfer is a part of that three years. Because if you provide new technology to a country and engineers are not training it, they cannot sustain it. So in these three years, our engineers train engineers in the country to make sure that they can operate the system without us. Very important. A second very important thing is our contracts as well. I'm not going to say it's always going to work out, but that's at least the aim, we oblige governments to make people pay for the water, which is not always obvious. As soon as people pay for water, the value of water, again, we come back to the value, 
is there. People understand. That's the, the most amazing part. People are really willing to pay. Mm-hmm. They are really, even the poorest one, are willing to pay for good quality drink water because they don't want their kids getting sick. 4.5 million people die worldwide per year because of drinking water issues. Most of them are kids. So they're really willing to pay for that. And these two things already, technology transfer and payment of system is a huge enabler of also for governments. It also helps governments to install. Why? There's a payback of the capital investment as well. And there's a payback of operational costs as well. Like I said, it's not technology we provide. It's a concept that we provide. You have a strong claim in what you said, which is that your total cost of ownership is lower than any other solution. How do, do you measure that? The thing is, uh, we had also a discussion today about decentralized systems. Decentralized systems are not very common yet as a structural solution to mm-hmm. drinking water. So we compare ourselves, obviously, to the next best thing, which is centralized solution. Now, if you compare to centralized solution for remote areas, that's a no-brainer. The cost of a piping is between 150 and 350,000 euros per kilometer. Mm-hmm. And it's quite independent from country. Because, for example, in Rwanda, you have more, uh, dif- more difficult access to heavy machinery, so it costs more. So that cost is real. So there, the cost there is really, yeah, there's no-brainer. And then, of course, you have competition that works also on decentralized. But if you look at the price or price, it's quite expensive. But if you look at the total cost of ownership being that our systems work, operate for 20, 30 years, and then you're going to uh, also calculate the maintenance of it, which is almost nothing, then your total cost of ownership is super low. And that's what we aim at. So we want to be product leaders. So we want to we be the Porsche of the Dragoar installations, but in the idea of making sure that maintenance is very low and the robustness of the system is very high. And that's where we, why we claim we have the lowest total cost of ownership in the market. Two thoughts here. My first thought is that goes a bit against the trend, which is to say, um, let's do water as a service. And actually, it's the same thought. The two thoughts go together. If you were a pure capitalist, you would say, I have the lowest total cost of ownership. Let me finance the installation and let me bill everyone a service because I know that on the long run, I'm going to be very profitable. Yeah, that's also what we want to go to. But if you want to do that, If you do that now, you take government again away because government... They have the capability to invest, but not really to pay, yeah. Exactly. And that's also because the water as a service model is something that we do, for example, a bottled water concept is water as a service. They pay per liter of water. They don't pay an installation. The installation is ours. But that's also because it's a completely different setup. With governments, a lot more difficult. You know, there are three reasons why we sell to government. First of all is the need, but the need, 95 countries worldwide need it. The second is network. You need to know the right people, obviously, also on a political level. And the third is financing. Now, in Western Europe, that's not really an issue. Governments are financially powerful enough to pay that. But in a lot of developing countries, that's not the case. And if you want to finance a project and you want to do it to what as a service, there's no insurance company is going to insure that transaction. If you do it through a lump sum, saying the project costs 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, then they're going to insure that transaction. And for us as a startup company, it's only the only way to start up because we need that cash in to make sure that we can evolve to what as a service business. Because the idea would be then that people pay directly to the system, the money comes on our account, and we pay back the investment, but also pay for operational costs. But then you skip the government again. And that's something I believe that's dangerous. Why? I'm actually convinced about social capitalism. And what I mean by that is that the basic needs of humans should be public-owned. Drinking water, electricity, telecom is also a basic need these days because, yeah, connectivity is super important. But it should be privately run, if you know what I mean. Because mm-hmm. privately run, you get if, uh, efficiency, you really uh, look at the cost, uh, you, you have a lot better, uh, you have more flexibility on the employer's market, you don't have that these people that are fixed in a job. But it should go back to the community, and that's why we involve governments. It's, all, it's an opinion, basically. But I believe in that opinion because in the long run, I think... Drinking water is so basic, it's so elementary, that it should be public-owned. It's interesting because with your model of these three years of operation, it's almost like you're doing, you know, for, for these big projects, there's a build-operate transfer, and, uh, and that usually is for really huge infrastructure projects, and you're taking the same concept just on a very small scale and saying, hey, you can do exactly the same. You build it, pay for it in France, and then three years long, we train your people, and after, it's yours. Use it for the next 30 years. Exactly. But the thing is, there's also a reason to that. 
we focus as a company on project 5 million euro and plus. We do project between 1 million and 5 years and we don't want to do project less than 1 million unless they have a strategic importance. For example, we do two projects now with the biggest drink water company of Belgium. They're a small project, but of course, from a strategic point of view, very important because they have a big market that we can serve in the longer run. The same now in Suriname, we're providing for a gold mining company for because they have communities that with the workers that work for the mine and they provide all the social needs, schooling, uh, electricity, drinking water. And that's also small project but we do that obviously to get into that market because it has strategic uh, strength the concept of BOSIC is a centralized approach on decentralized drink water supply if you go like I said the example with Rwanda the 10 villages 10 different uh, installations that's not efficient but if you do as one company 10 different villages you have decentralized approach a decentralized system in every village but you can control centralized you can centralize your maintenance you can centralize your spare part management then the cost per unit goes drastically down so it's Actually, also for bigger projects. And if you were with governments, a project for 3 million euros for a government is super small, even for developing countries. The projects we talk about are, are actually 8 million and plus. Why? And that's, again, the financing part. Banks don't want a financing project less than 10 million euros because it's not, it's not beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. Countries know that as well. It's indeed small scale. At the other hand, it's big scale. But it's, we combine the two, basically. For us, it doesn't make any sense. If a country asks us, I, I want one village, one installation, then we say, no, we don't do that. Because that's not the impact that we envision. That's not uh, how the model is built. Our systems as well, and that's a, a technical uh, thing, our systems are built modular. So every uh, module in the container, in the, in the, where, wherever it's, it's set up, has its specific goal within the system. So we have a standard product with standard modules. But if you have, for example, mercury in the world, which is quite common in uh, in, uh, in Suriname, then you put a module in it that takes preferentially mercury out of the water. And that's an option. Uh, solar, if you want solar energy, that's an option. If you want hydro energy, that's an option. So you pay for that. You have to relate actually to the car manufacturing market where you pay a standard car with options. And that's what exactly what we do as well. And we make it standardized. So that means that we don't have to re-engineer our product for every different situation because we just put a model in or out. But if you look at the production capacity then, now it's very expensive to develop, but at from a point of production, it's a lot cheaper because you can really do big series. It's always the same. And you just build the models. And they're both modular from a hardware point of view, but also from a software point of view. And all these models are connected with intermediate blocks, software blocks that connects everything. And that's, of course, more expensive now, but in the long run, a lot cheaper. And that's, we want to go, we pay now between five fifty cents and one 1.5 euro per cubic meter, we want to go to 30 cents per cubic meter. And it's definitely reachable with the concept that we're developing. So it's built for being big. It's amazing because, you know, if you talk to what the professionals, they usually tell you every project is the same, except that it's totally different. And um, I think every single company out there in the market has tried to standardize. And I would say that almost all of them, I would have told you all of them failed but apparently you're an example, which makes me now say almost all of them. <laughs> but that's always been the, the ambition to say there's things you can standardize. But at the end of the day, the water is different at every single place in the world. Exactly. So yeah. how can you standardize that? But you can because it looks like you have the same product, but it's actually not because there are different modules in it. But the modules are standardized. Okay. So you just, it's like a building blocks. You make building blocks and you make, let's say, uh, Thin building blocks, but with thin building blocks, if you only need five, you have thin building blocks, you really can make a huge variation of final products, basically. So you standardize the Lego bricks, but exactly. you can build whatever you want. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you mentioned that you can work off-grid without energy. What is powering you? Is it solar power? Yes. So uh, we provide ourselves solar power and we have partners for wind and uh, hydro. Uh, but all systems can be also put on the grid because in some communities, for example, Romania, all communities have electricity, but they don't have water, drinking water. It's also more sustainable because it's already there. Then you don't have to put solar panels because then you invest twice for, the, for exactly the same output. We're not a big fan of that if it's not necessary. So we want to have more sustainable, uh, renewable energies. But of course, it's also the client that decides and every system can also be put on a generator. For example, for remote areas where you have sometimes uh, energy breakdown, they say, oh, we don't need uh, the solar panels because we have energy. You have an energy breakdown. They can put a, a generator on it. But that's, again, an option, something we don't promote, but it's an option. So you have the flexibility. But if you run on solar panels and if someone wants to shower at night, 
How does that work? Oh, it's a battery system. So you have you have backup. So the, the system is all uh, is always uh, built with backup, and also it's not purification at the moment. So there's always a buffer capacity, and that's also yeah, that's uh, an engineering calculation how much you have to provide for a certain community. So that's always there. And the water is always we we uh, disinfect it also. Also there we uh, make sure that's more sustainable because normally ultraviolet lights is a good way of disinfecting. But the mercury lamps, you already hear it, mercury lamps, not sustainable, heavy metal, you don't want that. So we use LED UV. It's brand new technology. It's more expensive. It's a lot more sustainable. It's also more robust, also ideal for our uh, applications. So also there in, in new products, new things that we find on the market, we implement it in our, in our, in our systems. You mentioned that you have the absolute certainty that your products will last 30 years, yet you don't have yet those 30 years as BOSAC. So how can you be so convinced that it's going to last Oh, I think it's it's experience. You're not never certain. If yes. I'm dead honest, certainty doesn't you, yeah, exist. Yeah, exactly. But it's built in that way. And of course, there's a lot of experience in the market, what lasts long or what doesn't. That's also the reason, for example, why do we work with GF? Because we know it's quality products. We do not put Chinese 20% of the GF price products in our systems because you know it's going to fail after after one or two years, maybe even earlier. So we make sure that the products that we build in are high quality, where there's a lot of experience with it over a long period of time that we know, okay, this product is going to last for a long time. And also the system is also built to make sure that if, for example, a pump fails, it's very easy to build in and out. So it's very flexible in that, that sense. So can you claim that? No, of course, we have to sell. And it's, it's a marketing thing. We are the best in the market. We use the best products to make sure that the installation is robust and lasts for a long time. Because I can find the same installation. No, not the same installation. The installation does the same, let's say, 5,000 liters per hour of drinking water in China at 20% of the price. But I'm 100% sure that that will fail way long before ours will fail. That's 100% certain. And so you see in the market, it's a frustration from the market as well. Eh? It's a big frustration as well. You hear it a lot. Ah, oh, yeah, it was just a few months and it's done. It's, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, we can't have that. Also with the name of the company, we, we don't want to have that, obviously. So you're back to this total cost of ownership aspect. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. Usually uh, you can't afford to be cheap. I mean, that's exactly. uh, that's exactly. usual saying. Uh -huh. um, last question for me in this deep dive. You, you mentioned this, uh, this element of the, the digital side of things that, Thanks to uh, the, the phone network, you're able to look at everything from remotely. But what do you exactly look at? What is, what is it that you're monitoring? What are your key Quality, indicators? Quality, um, flow, uh, temperature, humidity. Quality meaning? Uh, water quality. Yeah, but... And organic influence or what will everything like we have uh, developed also it's also be patented it's a it's a quality sensor in line which is a lot cheaper than what you have available on the market and for example our systems are intelligent they know for example when a river has more organic content the installation will uh, run at a lower pace do not burn the the the, the membranes uh, unnecessarily And also the information that we we uh, take is locked. And um, the idea is now, so we are now in the process of hiring a software engineer, uh, we'll um, develop AI to make sure that the information that we get in from the logging system can help us in optimizing our design to circumstances. For example, if it's very humid, then we can see that a pump has needs maintenance after one year and in very dry, only two years, for example. It's just a, an idea. I don't know if that's the case, but that's just an idea. Mm -hmm. So you can optimize your design, but you also can predict your maintenance. And it's also a huge cost saver. Uh, predictive maintenance also, it's IoT connected. So you need that data to read in. And that's the reason why we have so much data. So also data that you, from a first point of view, why would you need that? Why would you need humidity in the country that you operate? Well, for that, design optimizations, Corrosion, for example, uh, if you see temperature with, with humidity has a lot faster corrosion on this element, okay, we're going to change that to plastic or, or, or an inox, whatever, uh, or, or uh, yeah, any material that's better for that circumstances. So we can optimize our design. So that's a bit the idea. I don't want to throw buzzwords at you, but uh, that sounds to me like uh, an ideal field to go for machine learning. If you see that pattern, then probably this exactly. is going to happen. Exactly. Actually, I think that's also the, the case. I think there's so much technology available. Use it. You know, why wouldn't we use it? It's. I also believe I'm a hardware guy. I believe in the the huge need of hardware providing drinking water. 
but I'm not naive either. The thing is, software is a main drive for any company. If you want to be on top, if you want to be on top of your game all time, you need to know what you're doing. And how do you need to know what you're doing? Is data mining in your own systems, and that's it's a necessity. It's not even nice to have. It's a necessity for us to make sure we're on top of a game for the coming years, and we can keep innovating uh, the system that we have. Because, like I said. It's not a fetish that we work with memory technology. Maybe in five years we do a completely different technology because we believe that another technology is better, more energy efficient, uh, less burn on the, on an the environment, whatever. So I think, and you have to evolve, and you also have to dare to evolve with that. And then you need data. Uh, we engineering company, we just can't say, oh, we think it's going to be better. No, no, you have to know it's going to be better, yes or no. So it's a trend that we also follow as a company. I think it's necessary. It's, yeah, a lot of things are, are it's moving very fast, so why not use it? You mentioned this element of the membranes that's still a, a recent technology in terms of acceptance. I had Graham Pierce on that, on that microphone who explained us how when he was uh, traveling around the UK in the 90s and early 2000s, people were laughing at him saying membranes are never going to be a thing. And look at us 20 years later. I mean, it's just everywhere. So um, yeah, you never know what's going to be the technology of the future. I'm sorry, I said it was the last question and I keep throwing <laughs> questions at you, but I, I have, I promise you this time it's the last one. <laughs> It's about, you know, the acceptance of the market. There, there is something, there's a common pattern within the water market. There's always this, okay, it might be good. It might even be 20% better than what we already know. But what we know, we know it. And it's been working that way for 30 years. So why shall we change? Is your chance here that you are addressing a market where there's nothing? So you're making better than nothing in any case? Um, yeah, partially. I think, uh, I think the biggest chance for us is the developed world. Because there, the process are already uh, a lot more installed. You know, in Sunam, they don't have water in decentralized areas. Mm -hmm. So any solution is good, basically. So it's a lot easier to get that to them. But for example, we're working in Belgium on uh, the hybrid system, meaning centralized combined with decentralized to have 100% coverage of uh, drinking water within Belgium. That's a hard process. Very political. Um, they have the holy house. They don't want to kick in. So, but that's, you know... If you think being an entrepreneur is easy, then everybody would do it. It's part of the game. It takes a long time, especially with governments. It takes a long time, and it's it's a fight. It's a fight that, and you have to keep on fighting. I think the main characteristic of any good entrepreneur is perseverance. Never give up. I heard a quote a few weeks ago, and it was a brilliant quote: "Is winners are losers who never give up." I like that quote. <laughs> it's a very good one. Because it's what it is. Like I said, we were almost three times bankrupt. We're still floating. And maybe next year we're bankrupt. You know, you don't know. But my mindset, I'm going to make this work and I'll make sure that we'll have that impact. And we go for it and we keep going for it. And even the last thing of hope that we could have, I'm going to grab it and we're going to go for it. And that's what I think entrepreneuring is about is, is yeah, a bit of a healthy, a healthy mind, obviously. But perseverance and never stop. If you want to listen to a cool episode about entrepreneurship in the water world, it's, it's a, a Belgian company as, as well. Uh, Wim Odenart was my guest here from AMT. Oh, Wim Odenart, AMT. And, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, it was very inspiring. You have a clear path, which is to become a unicorn. When is that going to happen? Just to know when I schedule the follow-up with you. 15 years, yeah. So 15. we have five years, we're going to grow massively. And then because it's it's process. So now we're a project company, we want to evolve to a product company, and then we want to evolve to what is a service company. Like I said, difficulties for going to what is a service company immediately is, first of all, cash. Uh, as a small companies, a lot more difficult. If you want to raise 50 million, which you would need for what is a service company, big scale, then we can't raise that right now. But also, it's also more logical to make sure that we now focus on the technology, meaning building the building blocks. So it's a product company. So if a country says, oh, we want this, okay, this is on the shelf, this is what we need for this kind of project, but the project is productized. So the project is actually a product. And then we go to what is a service. So that's going to take us some time. So the first five years now is product company and then what is a service company. So that's the idea. And in 15 years, I want to be there. And I want to sit here and uh, tell you that we're the biggest worldwide in decentralized drink water supply. So fingers crossed. Uh, I love hard work. We know that. I also know it's dangerous to talk about these ambitions. But I don't want to... It's, it's refreshing, to be honest. It's really refreshing to hear that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I think I, I also need that. I need that goal to set for myself to make sure that we follow up on this. And, you know, I draw the die trying and failing that never tried. So that's for me, uh, um, yeah, part of my personality, I guess. Let me throw a closing thought at you before we switch to the rapid fire question, because I said it was the last one and it's my third last one. But 
when you see a company like Clubhouse, which is raising $4 billion with, um, I mean, an audio social media, which is not even one year old. And you say, on the other end, you, you're solving an issue, which is a, a life issue for billions of people. And you say it's going to be impossible to raise 50 millions. Well, it's not impossible, but now we I don't mean, want it. Very we, challenging. You know, exactly. Very challenging at this stage. And we don't want to put the effort in it at this stage. Also, because uh, the technology maturity should be a little bit higher if we do that. Is it a frustration? No, it's not a frustration. I'm not frustrated about that. But I just don't understand. From, from a healthy mind to understand it because you can live without Facebook you cannot live without water but still the the value of a but water you company you cannot live, live without Wi-Fi come on <laughs> <laughs> exactly but that's, it's just perception eh? we are willing to pay 500 euros for a cell phone we're not willing to pay 500 euros a year for water it doesn't make any sense but that's just the way it is and let's hope that we can raise awareness about the value of water in the coming years more than it's now but it will never be like a, a cool iPhone or whatever uh, so yeah but the thing is as well like the bottled water we, we, we sell we sell that at a half a euro a liter and what we sell to governments a half a euro per cubic meter so that's a thousand times more and just the perception because the boat looks very cool it's a very nice concept it's a marketing product and people are willing to pay don't get me started. You know, I'm a son of water engineers. I've been raised into this belief that tap water is the best thing there is, there was, and there will ever be. And uh, when I was a student in, in Mulhouse, in France, we had the um, tap water who had kind of a taste and people wouldn't drink the tap water. So the city of, uh, of Mulhouse, what they did is they tried to explain to the people that the taste was because uh, there was this uh, terror attack and you had to put chlorine into the water. And that was the reason for the taste. But people kept they didn't want to drink that. So the city took the exact same water, bottled it and sold it. And people bought those bottles. Exactly. And that, that tells you just <laughs> sometimes how we can be stupid. But, <laughs> but yeah, as I said, don't get me started. And it's, it's, it's my third <laughs> closing. I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in this last section, I try to keep the question short and you can try to keep the answer short, but I'm not cutting the microphone if you have something more to say. Fair enough. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Yeah, Antarctica. Not now? You mean now or... In general, through your Antarctica life? Antarctica for me, absolutely. Because you come back to yourself, very rudimentary. If you talk about lockdown, I can assure you, Antarctica is a full lockdown. There's <laughs> nothing there. Um, but it's the, it was the inspiration of my professional career as the start of Bosak. So yeah, that's for me absolutely the project that inspired me the most. Yeah. What is your favorite part of your current job? Traveling. <laughs> Sounds interesting in those days, but... <laughs> yeah, I travel actually quite a lot because the good thing about water is it's necessity. So it's also considered as a necessary business. So I could travel quite a lot, but I love being in contact with different culture. I love being in contact with different uh, backgrounds. I love being in contact with different technologies, with different people. I love that. And that's, the, I think, the best part of my job. Yeah. What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? My. Don't tell me decentralized treatments. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think since I started with Bosak, I think also at the same time, um, not because of Bosak, I wish, but not. Um, the water sector is changing uh, for the good. Uh, and I think it's going a little bit further away from government, from a technological point of view, in sense, innovation. Uh, in the water sector, so much innovation is still possible. The low-hanging fruits are still there. So I really believe that the trend is going to, what is going to be hot, it's going to be sexy. It's going to be a product that I believe is going to be also um, a very important one, also in the, in, the, in the eyes of public opinion. Like oil was still a bit, will go down. I think water will go up. Uh, they, all, they refer it as the blue gold, um, the new oil, whatever. And I yeah, think that water is going to have a more public, it will be more publicly debated and it will be a very grateful market to work in, I think, for the future. Yeah. I had a great discussion with uh, Nicolas Leirabello on that microphone about water futures being traded in Wall Street now. And um, it has its pros, its cons, but it certainly shows that... Um, the interest yeah. in uh, water, yeah. What is the thing you care the most about when you're working on a new project? And what's the one you care the least? <laughs> what I care most about is the impact-drivenness. Uh, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's really important for me. I want that project we do have a real impact. What I care less, <laughs> it's a difficult one. That's what always the most care. difficult one. Yeah, what I care <laughs> less. 
I can award you a Joker card if you wish. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take the Joker for that. <laughs> okay, Joker card. Um, do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the latest market news? No. Uh, one of the worst things about me is I don't read a lot. I read a lot of uh, politics because it's necessary for my job. Uh, but I don't read a lot of books. I don't read a lot of uh, topics about... I do read, but it's very random. Like in LinkedIn, I'm, there's a lot of things that I follow, but I don't read it. Even my own articles, because <laughs> I have articles that I write in my name, I don't get to it reading all, all, all them. So I'm not a good source for uh, getting uh, the reading, um, the articles. But so your best source is people, because you want to meet people. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, the best source is people. That's true. That's true. Because the thing is as well, um, and I'll say to my engineers as well, engineers are a breed. I'm an engineer myself, so I'm talking for myself, so I can't say that. They're a breed that wants to reach perfection. But the market doesn't demand perfection. The market demands a product that's, that works. And then you can optimize it. So yeah, people are the best way of making sure that your product is an optimized product for the market. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. Would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that same microphone? In water, uh, yeah, Peter Lewis, obviously. I think from the initial point of view, he's doing great work. I think as well, in Belgium especially, we have to be grateful for what he's doing because it makes also water a big topic in Belgium and it makes us more important than we've ever been before. We're not competitors, not yet at least, but we're adding to each other. And I think, um, yeah, he's, he's a great. Uh, if you look, if you see what he's done in 10 years, it's amazing. So a uh, big respect to him and a big congrats. He also went just to the stock market with his company. So amazing. You have some other uh, companies like uh, Inopsis, which is focused on very uh, challenging uh, wastewater from uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, has also quite some success now in Belgium. And then you also have George Brick. He's from uh, Hydrovolta. Hydrovolta is a company. They won actually a great grant by EIC from the European Union for desalination. It's a new technology for desalination, which is a lot more energy efficient than membrane technology. It's electrodialysis mm -hmm. uh, system kind of thing. He has a great story because he comes from Syria. He had to flat the war, uh, start up again in Belgium, lost everything, and now has a great company. He's also uh, yeah, really growing fast, startup, also going to scale up. So also a very inspiring guy to talk to, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Jacob, it was a pleasure. I could have taken another hour of your time, but I have to be cautious of your time at some point. So thanks a lot for your time. And uh, yeah, talk to you when you hit the next big milestone. Yeah, let's hope. Thank a lot for having me here. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.